Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last time, John the Baptist was arrested. And we all know why he was arrested. The charges don't really matter. We all know why he was arrested. The king didn't like the world being constantly reminded by John that he was having an affair with his own brother's wife. The religious leaders didn't like him either because when they went out to check him out, they got a little scolded. John called them brood of vipers and sons of Satan. But John went to prison, and Jesus' fame exploded as he continued to perform miracles. And on his way to Galilee, he took a detour and walked all the way up to Sychar, where he met a Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well. The text in John's Gospel gives you the feeling that this was something that was very heavy on Jesus' heart. It said that it was necessary for him to go there. The King James said that he must needs go to Samaria. When he got there, he ran into this woman at Jacob's well who was getting water at an unusual time of day. The women usually went out there in the morning to get water, but she chose to come at noon. And it turns out that she's somewhat of a social outcast. She's been married over and over and over again. Now she's currently shacked up with some guy that she's not married to. But as she comes up to get water, Jesus asked her for some. And that kind of impressed her because she was a Samaritan woman and he was a Jewish man. See, Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans because of a long history of segregation and racial tensions and prejudices. It's a long story. She said, what's this all about? A Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. And he told her, well, if you knew who this was who was talking to you, you'd ask him for water instead. And as they continued this conversation, she finally began to realize that he wasn't talking about liquid water. He was using it as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. He told her that if she had asked, he would have given her living water that would bubble up inside of her, becoming a spring of water for eternal life. And that's when she finally calls him. You know, okay, I'll bite. Give me this living water that never ceases, so I won't have to keep coming back to this well every day. And he said, all right, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. And he said, no kidding. For you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. And at that statement, she realized that this was no ordinary stranger. She said to him, sir, you must be a prophet. And then with that assumption, she immediately brought up what was the biggest religious debate of her day. She said, you Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers worshiped here in these mountains. And Jesus said, well, that's superficial. It doesn't matter where you are. God is a spirit. He's everywhere. So you don't worship the Father physically in one place or another. You worship him in spirit. And then she said, well, one of these days the Messiah will come and he'll explain all of this to us and make it clear. And then Jesus said in a way that only Jesus could. He said, I who now speak with you am he. She then immediately dropped her water bucket, ran into town. She grabbed a hold of as many people as she could find screaming, the Messiah's here. It's the Messiah, the Christ. He told me of everything I've ever done. So the town ran out with her to meet him, and they invited him to stay with him for a couple of days, which, of course, he did. He stayed with them for two days, and they all got saved, folks. All of this excitement in the little town of Sychar, which means purchased, by the way, and that's where we left off. So after this little detour, Jesus heads up to Galilee. Let's continue starting in John chapter 4, verse 43. It says, after these two days, Jesus went on from there into Galilee, although he himself declared that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Why is that, folks? Why is that, by the way? Perhaps familiarity? Jesus' own brothers didn't recognize him as the Messiah until after he was resurrected. Both James and Jude never completely bought what was really happening until after the big event, the resurrection. Verse 45, however, when he came into Galilee, the Galileans also welcomed him and took him to their hearts eagerly, for they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the feast, for they too had attended the feast. Now, folks, before we continue on here in John, to completely get all of the info about what he did in Galilee, right here, you had to turn to two other verses that give you a short little headline about what Jesus was up to there. Luke's short little headline is in Luke chapter 4, verse 15. And it says that he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The Amplified Translation says he was recognized and honored and praised by all. 
Mark's little headline about this goes a little further and tells us what he taught in those synagogues. And that's in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It says, He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Of course, what is the gospel, folks? It's what Jesus told Nicodemus and then told the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Messiah has to become a symbol of God's judgment against sin and be nailed to a pole and then lifted up so that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is how a person is reborn in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, no man will ever see the kingdom of God unless he is spiritually reborn. And then he told the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, the Holy Spirit is like living water that will be an eternal spring of water bubbling up and continually flowing inside unto eternal life. Jesus said, all who ask of this water will never be thirsty again. That's the gospel. Whenever you hear someone use that word, the gospel, that's what it is. That's the catch-all summarizing word. It means good news. Now let's turn back to John to continue the flow of the story here. John chapter 4, verse 46, it says, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman, a royal official, whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, folks, first time I read this, I was really puzzled at Jesus' demeanor here. I thought, what do you mean? This guy showed faith. He went up to you and begged for you, not somebody else, but for you to come and heal his son. That's a show of faith, isn't it? Why did Jesus say, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe? The nobleman said to him, pleading, sir, please come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Oh, that's right. I forgot you're God. You created the entire universe. You don't actually have to be there physically to heal him, do you? See, folks, a prophet would have. A lot of people try to squeeze Jesus into the category of just being a prophet. They don't want to recognize that he was God in the flesh. That's why Jesus was a little put out by this guy's lack of faith. You know, does God not have command over the movement of every atom and molecule in the universe? Towards the end of the book of Job, God sarcastically Asked Job, hey, can you command the lightning and tell it where to go so that when it gets there, it reports back to you and says, here I am. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says that in Christ, all things are held together. That means everything from the cohesion of a galaxy to the cohesion of an atom. In Christ, all things are held together. So Jesus is like, you know, what's, what's with this lack of faith? What makes you think you have to drag me all the way back to where your son is? I can heal him right here. That's why Jesus was put out, folks, because it's not his abilities that he's trying to win people over with. It's who he is. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He's God in human form for our benefit. The prophesied son of God. Continuing on, verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour that he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. So he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. He's in the town of Cana now, folks. This is, that's the, you know, the first miracle was turning water into wine at that wedding feast. And this is the second one in Cana. It's healing this royal official's son from a distance. But now Jesus heads off to Nazareth. This is where Jesus actually grew up as a kid and grew up into adulthood. This is home turf. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he entered the synagogue, as was his custom on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And there was handed to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
He opened up the book and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to announce deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are bruised. And when you get into the Greek, folks, bruised could be amplified as oppressed, downtrodden, crushed, broken down by calamity. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to announce deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were bruised, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence and in your hearing. Folks, the book that Jesus read from in front of everybody was the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's book was written almost 800 years before Jesus read from it in front of these people. Isaiah is full of prophecies focusing on the missions of the Messiah, both his first and second comings. And it also covers prophetically the history of Israel. Lots of prophecies in Isaiah that have been fulfilled since its publication. As a matter of fact, when we get to the crucifixion, we're going to look at some of those prophecies in Isaiah, and it'll give you goosebumps, folks, just going through it, because it was written close to 800 years before any of this took place, and yet those prophecies, they're not vague or illusionary. They are precise, they're specific, and graphically detailed. But right now, Jesus is speaking to a group of folks in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he stood up to read from the scriptures, and Luke says that Jesus was handed the book of Isaiah. And what we have recorded here in Luke is Jesus reading directly from Isaiah. He was reading the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 61. He reads to them, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to announce deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are bruised and oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What does that last part mean, folks? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What's that all about? It's talking about the year of Jubilee that's mapped out in Leviticus 25. Leviticus, the third book of Moses, was the book of instruction concerning everything imaginable. Laws, punishments regarding the breaking of those laws, the price for redemption of breaking those laws, and everything in between. And Leviticus wasn't just about moral law. It involved civil law and personal instructive law as well. See, a lot of times people will quote something from Leviticus as though it's the Ten Commandments. And a lot of it is an expounding of those ten laws, but it wasn't all about moral code. A lot of it was about civil code and health codes. And this wasn't just for individual people, but everything concerning land, possessions, livestock, and so forth. But whether it was the divine moral code, or civil code, or health codes, all of it was symbolic of what was to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Leviticus is probably the most boring and tedious book of the entire Bible, until you realize that every bit of it somehow alludes to either the person of Jesus Christ or the actions of Jesus Christ, such as the sacrificial lamb. I mean, that one sticks out at us. We recognize that one. And even the most tedious details of Leviticus can shed some insights. Once you figure that out, then Leviticus becomes a treasure hunt. And here's an example of this. In Leviticus chapter 25, it laid out the schedule for the crops, the fields. And it instructed Israel to work the land for six years, and then let it rest for a seventh year, the whole year. They didn't do anything with the land. But once that seventh year was over with, they'd start over again. Work it again for another six years, and then afterwards, let it rest for a seventh year. So you worked it for six years, let it rest for a seventh year. Once you went through this seven-year rotation seven times in a row, then you had a jubilee year. It was the seventh, seventh year, or the 49th year. They called that the year of Jubilee. 
guess what happened on that year? Not only did the land rest, but that's when all debts, everyone who owed a debt to anybody, no matter what that debt was or how much it was, all debts were canceled and all slaves were set free. And all that's defined in Leviticus chapter 25 for Israel to follow. It was called the year of Jubilee. Now, when we read that, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, what a strange rule. We don't follow that today. And why is it recorded there for us to read? And why did they have to do it? See, this is why Leviticus is one of the most avoided books of the Bible. But once you realize that a lot of these tedious rules that were laid out in Leviticus actually symbolize something that Jesus would personally fulfill, then it's got a whole new meaning to it. Leviticus was the law. And later on in the Gospels, Jesus is going to get accused by the Pharisees of trying to overthrow the law. But then he tells them, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. As New Testament Christians, part of that is obvious to us. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He's fulfilled that part of the law. That's why we don't have to slaughter a lamb on a regular basis to cleanse us of our sins. Because Jesus fulfilled that portion of the law. He's our sacrificial lamb. But the sacrificing of a lamb is just one part of the law. Jesus said that he came to fulfill all of it. And that's what makes Leviticus such a fun treasure hunt. The sacrificial lamb sticks out, but what about the rest of it? Well, here's one example. The year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. We could spend hours talking about all the mystical and prophetical implications of the Jubilee year. But we'll stay focused on our study for the time being. According to Leviticus 25, what happened on the year of Jubilee? The land rested, all debts were canceled, and all slaves were set free. And that goes right along with everything else that Jesus was saying that he fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. He read to them, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to announce deliverance to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are bruised and oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He's reading from Isaiah, and after he reads it, he sits down and says to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. I mean, wow. But there's something else here that's even more incredible, and this might give you goosebumps, depending on how you look at this. If you turn back to Isaiah and look at those two verses that Jesus read, you'll notice that Jesus didn't read all of verse 2. He didn't read all of verse 2 before he closed the book. He stopped at a comma. He read all of verse 1, and then he read the first half of verse 2. Then he sat down and said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. He didn't finish verse 2. Let's go back and look at it and see what it was that he left out. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. Ooh. I wonder how many people there in the synagogue knew the book of Isaiah well enough to know without looking it up what Jesus left out. I just wonder if anyone there was holding their breath when he got to that comma. Everything up to that comma, Jesus said it was being fulfilled right there in front of them. But everything after the comma has been reserved for Jesus' second coming. What's after the comma? Proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God. You know, to those who only know of Jesus through the Christmas and Easter specials that come on TV or the cliches that get thrown around all the time through all the children's songs and so forth, the very sound of the name Jesus tends to have a sweet, cute, little happy sound to it. And a lot of that is because his first mission was all about mercy and grace, turn the other cheek and so forth. I mean, when we think of scary names, Jesus doesn't come up anywhere. The name Jesus doesn't have a scary sound to it. And yet, it's interesting that to the demonic realm, it certainly does. Because they know who he is. And they know what he's capable of. They know what he's going to do. It's been prophesied all throughout the Bible. 
they know that they only exist under a temporary illusion of freedom because of that comma in Isaiah 61, verse 2. I guarantee you, any demon that was within an earshot of that synagogue was probably holding their breath. The creator of the universe in a human body, the one who wiped out the Egyptian army in the book of Exodus, the one who will wipe out the armies of the Antichrist and put Satan in chains, He's the one standing here in this synagogue reading from the book of Isaiah. Before he became human, he carefully planned out two separate missions to the planet Earth. The latter mission will be the mission to end all missions because it involves fierce anger, almost uncontrollable wrath and vengeance. I say almost uncontrollable because God's perfect in his control. But mountains will melt. Stars will fall. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 13 says that the planet Earth will literally be knocked out of its orbit after God rattles the universe. Not just the planet Earth, but the entire universe. He'll shake it the same way a little kid shakes a Christmas snow globe. He said, in that day, I will make mortal man more rare than fine gold. But that's his second mission. His first mission is all about preparing a way for people to escape that second mission. Jesus' first mission was to take on himself, the wrath of God, at the cross. So that the perfection of God's justice wouldn't be tarnished, as well as the perfection of God's love. Jesus Christ, before he entered our space-time domain, he oversaw and engineered the writing of Isaiah chapter 61, which covers both missions. And then 800 years after Isaiah wrote it, Jesus entered into our space-time domain and he stood at a human body in front of a group of people in a synagogue and told them, you're in luck, this is my first trip. And as Chuck Mister likes to point out, that comma in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 has lasted almost 2,000 years. One day, history will move beyond that comma. But right now, Jesus stopped at the comma. And then he told everybody there, today, this scripture, everything up to the comma, is fulfilled in your presence. Something else, folks, and this is just a little side note, not really all that important, but I had to bring it up to settle a little pet peeve of mine. You notice that the wording of those two verses in Isaiah, in our Old Testament, you notice how it's a little different from the wording of those two verses that Jesus read? In other words, Jesus said gospel, but in Isaiah it said good tidings. What's the deal? Why why do we have those differences? We've got Isaiah in our Old Testament, so we know what Jesus was reading from. We have it right there in front of us. So why is what Jesus read a little different? I mean, it's the same thing, but it's not a word-for-word copy. I bring this up because the atheists love to bring stuff like this up. They think it's a stumbling block, you know. We're the ones who keep trying to tell them that the Bible is the infallible word of God and that there are no contradictions. Well, the atheists come up and say, well, I found one in Luke chapter 4. Jesus stood up and read from Isaiah 61, but it's not word for word. So either Jesus got it wrong, Luke got it wrong, or Isaiah got it wrong. Either our copy of Luke or our copy of Isaiah is inaccurate. So you can't say the Bible is infallible word of God. You can't say that. Nuh-uh. Well, Settle down, atheist. The reason why what Jesus read isn't identically word for word with what we see in Isaiah is because Jesus wasn't reading an original Hebrew translation. He was reading from the Greek translation known as the Septuagint. That's why when Jesus reads from Isaiah, recorded for us here in Luke, it's the same thing, but it's not a word for word verbatim carbon copy. The English translation that we have of Isaiah today was translated from the original Hebrew. But apparently, that's not what Jesus had at his disposal there in the synagogue. Prominent language of Jesus' day was Greek. So even in a Jewish synagogue, they had a Greek translation of the book of Isaiah. Why in the world would he read it from any other translation since everybody there speaks Greek? Now, was it a word-for-word verbatim copy? No. Did it say the same thing? Yes. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have given it any credit by reading from it. Saying the exact same thing in different words is not a contradiction. There's a lot of places in the New Testament where Paul will quote from an Old Testament passage, and sometimes when he quotes from it, he paraphrases it. 
And the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to have a problem with that since the Holy Spirit preserved both Paul's paraphrase in the New Testament along with the original in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit wrote both. This isn't a big deal unless you're just looking for excuses to be an atheist. And by the way, I'd also like to use this to just maybe elbow the ribs of the strict King James crowd a little bit. Just a little bit. God is against contemporary modern translations of the Bible. Really? Jesus read from one in Luke chapter 4. He did. Yeah. He read from the Greek Septuagint. That wasn't the way Isaiah was originally written. But notice, it did say the same thing. Good news, good tidings, gospel. It all means the same thing. Different words, different phrases, but same meaning. So I'm not defending all of the modern translations that are actually rewriting what's actually there. Those aren't paraphrases. Those aren't translations. Those are intentional changes for whatever reason. Big difference. On the one hand, you don't want to avoid modern translations that might enrich your understanding of God's Word. A lot of people do avoid them, and I think that impairs their biblical understanding. But on the other hand, choose your modern translations prayerfully and wisely. And this goes not only for translations, but commentaries as well. There's a lot of them out there if you're listening to this one. If you're listening to these audio commentaries that I'm doing, man, I'm glad. I'm excited that you're here, but be careful. Do your own homework and make sure that I know what I'm talking about. And all the little notes that you get published in these little study Bibles, the columns underneath, when you read a verse and it has something in italics and it refers you to a little note, at the bottom of the page. Don't accept those notes blindly. Do your own homework. Those notes are not God's word. Anyway, verse 20. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the words of grace that came from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do in Capernaum, do it here also in your own town. Jesus is acknowledging to them that he knows that he's on home turf. This is where he grew up. And he's been traveling all over the place doing all kinds of miracles. Now he's home and he's telling them, I know what you're thinking. I grew up here. You all see me as the son of Joseph and Mary. And that's about as far as it goes. Then I leave and travel around. And word comes back to you that I'm performing miracles all over the place, healing people from terminal illnesses, giving blind people their sight back, restoring limbs to people who are crippled, and doing all this while proclaiming to be the prophesied Messiah, the Son of God. So you're thinking and wondering, if this is really true, if he's the Messiah, why not start here in the town that raised him? Verse 24, then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly... Many widows were in Israel during the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. If you want to get into the background of all that, folks, that's in 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's keep reading verse 27. Jesus said, Many lepers were in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, Elijah's successor, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And that's an interesting story too, folks. You can find that in the Second Kings chapter 5. But folks, Jesus is using these two cases to make a point. He started off by exposing out loud what was going on in their innermost thoughts. If he's really the prophesied Messiah, why did he leave home away from everybody that knows him to start this reputation? And if it's not a lie, if it's really true, then why not spread around some of that miraculous healing around here at home? And he quotes an old proverb that sums up what they're thinking. Physician, heal thyself. But then he responds to that old proverb with another old proverb. No prophet is accepted in his own country. So what is God to do? And he answers that with two examples from the Old Testament. Even though there were many widows, God sent Elijah to one. And even though there were many lepers, Elijah was sent to heal only one. Jesus is showing them that in God's superior wisdom that spans time and space, he chooses who he chooses. And in those particular stories that Jesus brought up as his example, the ones singled out in both of them were not Jewish. Jesus is boldly telling them, when you put all this together, 
He's saying, hey, I was sent to save the world. That covers everybody. God has anointed me to heal the sick, to mend the brokenhearted, to release the captives, so on and so forth. He's proclaiming himself to be the one prophesied in Isaiah chapter 61. And he's saying, what I'm here to do will apply to all humanity. And that includes you, my fellow Nazarenes. But what doesn't include you is what could have been your part in all of this. We could have been on the same side, but I already know that you're not going to accept me. So what I've been prophesied to do as signs to prove that I am who I say I am, none of that's going to take place here. Folks, can you imagine this? I mean, this this is nuts. A guy grows up from childhood into manhood in the same town. 30 years. He leaves And then news comes back that he's performing miracles all over the place, proclaiming to be the prophesied Messiah. So there's all kinds of rumors being spread around. And then when he personally comes back home, he leads a sermon in the local synagogue there. The very people who went to PTA meetings with his parents, some of them might have even watched over him while Mary and Joseph could go catch a movie. I mean, well, you know what I mean. He tells these people that the guy who's prophesied all throughout Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament, he tells them, I'm that guy. That's me. I'm the prophesied Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm God himself in living human tissue. But I'm only telling you this out of professional courtesy. I already know that no matter what I say or what I do, you're not going to accept me. So I've chosen to perform the signs and miracles that I've been prophesied to perform elsewhere. Of course, Jesus said that in a lot nicer way than I just did, folks. But look at those verses again, and you'll see that's exactly what he's saying. First, he reads from Isaiah 61. He sits down and then says, those verses are talking about me and what I'm doing today. But then he tells them out loud what they're thinking. Physician, heal thyself. This is your hometown. Do what you've been doing elsewhere here. But then Jesus says, I'm a prophet that is not going to be accepted in his own country. So instead of bluntly saying to them, I'm not healing anybody in this town because none of you are going to believe anything I say anyway, he doesn't do that. Instead, he lets them down easy by citing two examples from the Old Testament where even though there was a desperate need from many people, God chose to heal only one. And in both of those examples, the recipient of God's miracle wasn't Jewish. Verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were enraged and filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Folks, you get into the original Greek of this phrase, this this was an angry mob. And where it says to throw him down over the cliff, the original Greek implies headlong. They were going to pick him up and throw him down head first over the cliff. That's a rather extreme reaction, don't you think? Or is it? One of the most popular arguments that you hear from atheists and agnostics today is that if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus never personally declares himself to be God. Really? Well, tell that to the people of Nazareth who went from being swept away by his command of speech to literally trying to kill him. Why? Because by laying claim to Isaiah 61 and then bringing up God's will to choose who he gives mercy... He's putting himself on the same level as God. And to make it worse, he's saying that since you don't and won't believe me, I'm not even going to attempt to prove it. And to add insult to injury, he tells them this on the Sabbath day in one of their synagogues. But their anger is uncontrolled. They could have taken this to their religious courts and so on and so forth, but they were filled with rage. And like an angry mob, they pushed and drove him out to a cliff to hurl him headlong down over it. But catch this next verse, folks. Verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Passing through their midst, he went on his way. Does that mean he just squirmed around and got lost in the shuffle and got out of there? Maybe. Because it just says that by passing through their midst, he went on his way. But there's just something about the suddenness of that verse. I mean, you can feel the tension and the anger of the mob. It started inside the synagogue. Jesus was in the midst of the mob from the time they grabbed him, then walking through the synagogue door, then over the terrain, and then up the brow of the hill to the cliff. Jesus was in their midst from the synagogue all the way up into the cliff. But once they get to the cliff, verse 30 reads, passing through their midst, he went on his way. 
That could mean he broke free of the crowd before they could throw him off the cliff, and then he ran away before they could catch him. But it doesn't say that. It could mean that he broke free of the crowd and just slipped through, just slipped through them unnoticed. That's plausible. You can get lost in an angry mob if people aren't paying attention. But how easy could that be if you were the target of the mob's anger? How do you get out of that without being noticed? And the tone of verse 30 is so flippant and so calm in contrast to everything that led up to it. The Amplified translates it, Passing through their midst, he went on his way. The King James says, He passing through the midst of them went his way. The New American Standard says, Passing through their midst, he went his way. So does the English Standard Version and many others. The Young's literal translation sounds a little more spooky, just a little bit. It says, And he, having gone through the midst of them, went away. Now, the thing with the Young's literal translation, and I'm just now starting to dig into that translation and see what it's all about. The Young's literal translation is a word-for-word translation that ignores any attempts to fit the flow of modern English. When all these English modern translations get made, well, even the King James, one of the attempts in translation isn't just the words, but trying to make it flow with the English, trying to make it flow the way English flows. By doing that, it sometimes makes the original meaning harder to see, so the Young's translation ignores any attempts to make it flow and just translates the original words into English as they are. That's why it's called the Young's literal translation. But the Young's literal translation says, He, having gone through the midst of them, went away. None of the translations that we went over, though, says that he supernaturally got himself out of that. It doesn't say that. If you take it word for word, it probably means that he just somehow slipped out of there. But you could also take it word for word and make it into something that's supernatural because of the mood of the language itself that leads up to this verse. And that's how I interpret this, folks. I could be wrong. But I tend to interpret this verse as a literal interpretation of what physically transpired. He passed through their midst, as in hyperdimensionally, supernaturally passed through their midst, and then he went on his way, according to the King James, the Amplified, the New American Standard, and so forth. The Youngs says, having gone through the midst of them, went away left them standing next to the cliff wondering what happened. If I were to make a movie, I would film this scene exiting the synagogue, starting with an overhead shot, so as the angry mob comes out of there, you clearly see that Jesus is in the middle of the mob, being pushed and shoved and led to the edge of the cliff. But as they get closer to the cliff, I would slowly move the camera angle from an overhead shot to an eye-level shot without any cuts. And when it gets to eye-level, you can't see Jesus anymore because the mob's in the way. All you can see is the mob. And as the camera continues to zoom out at eye-level so you can see the whole event from the point of view of bystanders, you see the back of several people's heads who are standing around watching this angry mob run up to a cliff, not really knowing what's going on. But then one of the bystanders turns around to show the audience that it's no bystander, it's Jesus. And he's turned his attention away from the mob and just walks on, leaving them at the edge of the cliff not knowing what happened. And as he does that, you'd hear voices from the mob saying, where'd he go? Where'd he go? At least that's how I envision this event every time I read this. Now, whether this is a supernatural event or a natural event, we know one thing for certain. He was in their midst all the way up until they had him at the cliff. We know that for certain. And then verse 30 says, having gone through the midst of them, he went away. Whatever that means. Jesus leaves his hometown. He leaves Nazareth after this episode and goes back to Capernaum. To follow this, let's go to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says, and leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee, folks. In the country of Zebulun, Naphtali. Those names are designated tribal names, folks. Those are two of the twelve tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. And the reason why Matthew is using those labels to identify the area where Jesus was dwelling 
is because you got to remember Matthew's account of all this was targeted primarily to a Jewish audience. So he used the labels that the tribes of Israel used when settling in the areas in which Jesus is now dwelling. And the reason why Matthew did that is so he could point out a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah. Let's keep reading. And leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee in the country of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be brought to pass. Quote, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the land in shadow of death, light has dawned. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, folks. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, folks, we hear the word repent so often on movies and TV shows today whenever they want to make fun of Christians because they usually wind up having some loud-mouthed idiot who's preaching hellfire and damnation. Repent, all ye sinners, repent! But the word repent just means to have a change of mind for the better. A change of heart for the better. You know, life... Life is a highway, and what road we take and how we drive it depends on what we think and what we feel. Repent just means pull over for a minute and think about where you are and where you're going. Make the appropriate course adjustments if necessary. Sometimes we kind of get in a hurry down a particular path, and we forget about why we originally went down that path to begin with. And we don't think to stop to compare where we really wanted to go with where we're currently going and down the path we're on. Of course, repent can also apply to sin if we get into a habit that's sinful. Maybe our original reasons were legitimate, but if you stop and look around you and see where you're going, see where it's gotten you, you'll want to pull over, get off that path, and turn around. That's what repent means, to have a change of mind and a change of heart about where we are and where we're going. Now, in Jesus' case, when he got up to Galilee, he was addressing a very pagan group of folks who were worshiping all kinds of strange gods, performing all kinds of ancient pagan rituals, and they really didn't even know why. It became a really bad habit, a ritual habit. Now, at this point in the narrative, the chronological order of events gets mixed up a little bit between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're following along in Luke... You'll notice we're going to be skipping over the rest of Luke chapter 4 and jumping ahead to Luke chapter 5. Same with Matthew. Before this session's over with, we'll be jumping ahead to Matthew chapter 8. We're in chapter 4 now, but we'll jump ahead to chapter 8 to follow the chronology, the chronological order of events that Peter laid out for us in his recorded account through Mark. Mark didn't give much detail, but he did get the chronological order down. If any of you are wondering what we're using to chronologically synchronize these four books, you could find at the back of the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance a section called The Harmony of the Gospels. And it lays out every single verse from all four accounts side by side and places them in order. And it seems that the only account that ordered everything down in perfect sequence was Mark, Peter's secretary. Now, those differences, they're not errors, folks. They never claimed to be keeping a timeline of everything. They were just trying to get everything down. But of those four accounts, it would seem that Mark kept everything in sequence. Now, this next report is covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is what is commonly thought of as the moment when Jesus first met Peter. But that's not the case. It's commonly thought that because this is the first mention of Peter in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those three books are placed first in the New Testament. But we find out in John chapter 1, verse 42, that Peter and Jesus met much sooner than that. It was Peter's brother Andrew who introduced them. Andrew was one of the two followers of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist said, there he is, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew followed him and they spent some time together talking. And then Andrew sought out his brother Peter and brought him back to meet Jesus, and that's when they met. Of course, his name was Simon at that point. When they met, Jesus said, your name will be called Peter, which means stone. And all that went down before they met Philip. And then they went to the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine and so forth. So Peter's already well acquainted with Jesus. But judging from what we're fixing to read here, something's about to happen that will really drive things home for Peter. Because up until now, his relationship with Jesus has been nothing more than, well, an acquaintance, a casual friendship. But things are about to get real serious between them. 
The event that transpires is covered in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, and Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We're going to tiptoe through this so we don't miss anything. We'll cover this from Luke's perspective and make comparisons to Matthew and Mark for any additional details. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, Matthew and Mark point out that he was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now folks, Gennesaret, that's another name for the Sea of Galilee because the Gennesaret was a type of harp and the Sea of Galilee was harp-shaped. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. Matthew and Mark's account tells us here that those two boats belonged to Peter and Andrew. So Peter and his brother were professional fishermen. Jesus saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon Peter, he asked him to draw away a little bit from the shore. Then he sat down and continued to teach the crowd of people from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon Peter, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a haul. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night, exhaustingly, and caught nothing in our nets. Now, folks, when Peter calls him master, that doesn't mean master as in teacher and pupil. At this point, Jesus is still just a buddy. The word master in this sense is like saying captain. Jesus stepped in the boat and asked to be taken a little out so he could address the crowd. So this is Peter's fond little nickname for him. Jesus said, Peter, take us out to deeper waters and lower your nets for a haul. Peter says, Captain, we worked hard all night doing just that and caught nothing. But on the ground of your word, I will lower the nets again. Verse 6. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were at the point of breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and take hold with them, and they came and filled both the boats. (laughs) So they began to sink. (laughs) When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was gripped with bewildering amazement and all who were with him at the haul of fish which they had made. This was Peter's professional territory, folks. All the other miracles that he had seen up until now, as awesome as they were, for some reason they just didn't click with Peter. Now he saw healings, he saw water turn to wine, but he never completely bought what was going on. Now I'm not saying that he thought Jesus was a fake or a liar. He was kind of in between, you know, not really sure, not really knowing what to think. All those previous miracles looked real and people were helped, but there just might have been something else going on. He didn't know what to think. So up until now, Peter's been kind of in between. The jury was still out. But it was with this miracle that he finally realized who Jesus really was. This was something that altered the reality that he was professionally aware of. Fishing wasn't just his hobby. It was his job. This was his profession. It was his career. He and his brother Andrew had a business deal together. They both had their own fishing boats. He was a professional fisherman. These were his waters. Those were his fish. And he knew those fish shouldn't have been in that net. He's been doing this for years and never seen anything like this, especially since Jesus had it all wrong. I mean, Jesus had it all wrong, folks. One of the things that you do is you drop your nets at night when the fish are swimming close to the surface of the water. In daylight, they swim far too low to get picked up by any net. And Peter and his crew have been fishing all night long and caught nothing. Sometimes that happens. But if there's no fish at night, then there's certainly not going to be any fish in the morning. There's more human action on the water. It's bright. It's noisy. Jesus just spent some time preaching out on the water. There's crowds gathered around all over the place. There's not going to be any fish to catch. But Peter liked Jesus. And after he went into a rant about how they weren't going to catch any fish, he thought, oh, well, for Jesus, it's, it's just about the fun. It's not about the fish. So Peter condescendingly said, aye, aye, captain, on the ground of your order, sir. And after casting down the nets at Jesus' prompting, not only were there fish, but the nets almost broke and the ships almost sank from the weight. This was something that only God could have done. The timing was all wrong, and they were using the same equipment that they always used, and there wasn't anything supernatural about the fish themselves. But Peter knew that the only way this could have happened 
is if the fish jumped into the net on purpose in response to a command from God. And all of them that could get into the net did. That's why it almost broke and the ship almost sank. And that's when Peter knew that Jesus just wasn't a friendly, crazy person that you can't help liking like the Santa Claus from Miracle on 34th Street. And he wasn't just a powerful prophet or teacher. Peter knew at this moment that Jesus was God himself in human flesh. And the moment he realized that, he suddenly saw himself and his own imperfection in contrast to the perfection of God. That's why he fell down on his knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, they say that as soon as a person knows they're about to die, or as soon as a person thinks they're about to die, they say that their life flashes before their eyes. Well, for Peter... As soon as he knew that he was sharing the same space and standing in the physical presence of the one who embodied the perfection of power, the perfection of knowledge and wisdom, the perfection of justice, perfectly balanced with the perfection of love, he became aware of the contrast between all of that perfection and his own imperfection. And he felt totally unworthy to the extent that he had to get on his knees. God didn't force him to get on his knees. Jesus didn't force him to get down there. Did he command Peter to get on his knees? No. Could he have? Jesus is God after all. Would Jesus be wrong to command Peter and others to bow down before him? No. But I think it's interesting that at no time do you find Jesus commanding anyone to fall down on their knees to worship him. And yet, in cases like Peter's right here, as soon as they know who he is, they can't help it. This happens several times throughout the Bible. But anyway, verse 8. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was gripped with bewildering amazement, and all who were with him at the hall of fish which had been caught. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon Peter. Now, folks, James and John weren't there to witness this. Luke's just summing things up, because Matthew and Mark's version of this records that after the catching of the fish and walking along, Jesus, Peter, and Andrew run into James and John. And they were amazed at what happened. So Luke just combined that here by saying Peter and Andrew and all who were with them. And oh yeah, so were James and John, Peter's partners. So Peter's freaking out at what just happened, falls down to his knees. And Jesus says, verse 10, Jesus said to Simon Peter, have no fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Matthew 4.19 and Mark 1.17 report that he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Luke 5.11, Mark 4.20, and Mark 1.18 all report that. And then Matthew and Mark report that walking along a little further, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their own boat mending nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. So together they all traveled to Capernaum. Now this next event is obviously reported by Mark, Because Peter was paying attention now. So you'll notice when you look at the harmony of the Gospels, it's at this point that Mark's account finally starts recording more detail because Peter's paying attention now. When Peter doesn't pay attention or perhaps doesn't like talking about something that happened, you'll notice on the harmony charts, that's where Mark's account is either condensed or doesn't have anything at all. But this next event, Peter's on a high. I mean, Peter is on a real high. And it's recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And Luke records in his account at Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. We'll take this from Peter's perspective through Mark. And if there's any differences in the report from Luke, we'll make a note of it. Jesus, Peter, and the rest, they entered into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. And they were completely astonished and amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who possessed authority and not as the scribes. Just at that time, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, Luke uses the phrase, possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, which is typical of Dr. Luke to be redundant. Have you ever heard of a clean demon? No. Mark said unclean spirit, which by default means we're talking about a demon. So if you're going to call it a demon, you don't have to call it an unclean demon, but Luke does. That's just his style, very wordy. But anyway, Jesus and his followers are here in this synagogue, and there's a demon-possessed person in there. Now, I find that interesting, folks. You always see in the movies that demons are afraid to go into churches and places of worship. I don't know where they got that idea. It's not biblical. 
Here we have a case of a demon-possessed guy at this synagogue. Jesus is there, and Mark and Luke record that he raised a deep, loud, and terrible cry from the depths of his throat. Now that is something that the movie industry loves to try to imitate. Whenever somebody's demon-possessed, they alter the voice and everything else because of this verse right here. Mark and Luke record that this demon-possessed guy raised a deep, loud, and terrible cry from the depths of his throat, saying, Leave us alone! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that's interesting, folks. Demons apparently keep up with biblical prophecy. They know they're destined to be personally destroyed by Jesus himself. It was prophesied in Daniel and Isaiah and Isaiah and other places. But it's too early now. What's he doing here now? They're freaked out. They didn't expect this. Leave us alone, they said. Leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, shut up. Now, you won't find that in any biblical translation, folks. That's the JPA Josh Allen, East Texas translation. Um, all of the translations that are out there say, be silent, be quiet. The Amplified says, hush up. But if you pull out your Strong's Concordance and look up the original Greek, the word that Jesus used means to be muzzled, to be gagged. And if you were to put that in modern English, I think shut up is closer to that than hush up or be silent or be quiet. Jesus pulled a Darth Vader on him. He didn't have a choice. Muzzled and gagged. Jesus said, shut up and come out of him. And then the demon threw the man into convulsions while screeching with a loud voice. And when the demon had thrown the man down in their midst, he came out of him without injuring him in any possible way. No injuries. Notice how this exorcism didn't take 30 minutes like it did in the exorcist. Shut up, get out. It did. End of story. And everyone was so amazed and almost terrified that they kept asking each other, saying, What is this? What kind of talk is this? What fresh new teaching? For with authority he gives orders even to demons, and they obey him. And immediately rumors concerning Jesus spread everywhere throughout all the regions surrounding Galilee. Now this next event, folks, takes place right after the episode in the synagogue because Mark and Luke both say at once Jesus left the synagogue and went into Simon Peter's house accompanied by James and John. Now Peter's mother-in-law was suffering in the grip of a burning fever and had been for some time. And they pleaded with Jesus on her behalf. All of this is in Mark chapter 1, verse 29 to 34, Luke chapter 4, verse 38 to 41, and Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. And when Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying ill with a fever. Matthew says he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began waiting on him. Mark says that he went up to her and took her by the hand and raised her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Luke says he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she got up and began waiting on them. And when it was evening, after the sun had set... They brought to him all who were sick with various diseases, and he laid his hands upon every one of them and cured them until the whole town was gathered together about the door. And he cured them all. And demons even came out of a lot of people, screaming and screeching and crying out, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not permit them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Folks, that's interesting. You know, people then, as well as today, ponder about whether or not Jesus really was the Son of God, but the demons knew with terrified certainty. But of all the things that could be a testament as to who Jesus really was, Jesus didn't want demons being a source of testimony. That's why he's always silencing them. It's not because they were lying or because he didn't want the truth to get out. He did want the truth to get out. That's why he was there. He came and performed all of these miracles for the sole purpose of proving that he was who he said he was. But he didn't want demons being a source for testimony. They're professional liars, and they don't testify out of love. They testify out of fear. And I think it's interesting. Every time Jesus approaches anyone who's demon-possessed, it's the same reaction. It's not just fear or terror, but shock. They weren't expecting him. They were expecting him much later. They kept up with prophecy. This first visit wasn't something that they were anticipating. 
Now, Matthew reports that he drove out the spirits with a word and restored to health all who were sick, and thus he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He himself took our weaknesses and infirmities and bore away our diseases. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. But before this whole story is over with, folks, Jesus will fulfill that particular prophecy in an even bigger way. And that's where we're going to leave it for now, folks. Until next time, we're out of here.